This is the Championship Chat Podcast, your home of news, views and debate from England's second tier. Hello and welcome to another episode of the Championship Chat Podcast. I'm your host, Elliot Jackson, and of course I am joined by my co-host, George Smith. George, how are you? Not bad, mate. Not bad. It's been a been a steady weekend. Had one day off, one day working, but as I've just been saying before we start recording, I've got three days left at work before two weeks off for Christmas. So I'm in a pretty upbeat mood, shall we say. Almost there on the countdown now, three days left. But uh, yeah, quite an interesting weekend in the Championship, wasn't it? Not quite as action-packed as last weekend on the pitch, but we certainly got a lot to get through in terms of off-the-pitch managerial movement since we last spoke. Yes, we've got three new vacancies in the Championship since we recorded last week. I'm all fat and happy because I've just been for a big three-course meal for my dad's birthday, so um, I'm trying to try and not fall asleep during this podcast, but I shouldn't because we've got lots of great stuff to talk about. Of course, the big breaking news this evening that Alex Neal has been sacked by Stoke City. Of course, Sunderland have uh, parted company with Tony Mowbray and Michael Duff has departed Swansea City as well. So we'll start with the breaking news that Stoke City have um, sacked Alex Neal. He's been in the job for just under 18 months, sort of August time, wasn't it, last year, that he made that switch from Sunderland, what, what was a very controversial move at the time. And I don't think anyone can have any real, real complaints about this, if I'm being completely honest. I think Alex Neal is a good championship manager. I have a lot of respect for the job he did at Preston North End in particular. Did a fantastic job to get Sunderland up as well, which I know a lot of people will say, well, Sunderland should, you should be getting Sunderland out of League One, but plenty of people have tried and failed before that. So I don't think you can um, belittle that achievement at all. He did a great job at Sunderland, but he's coming to Stoke and he's just not managed to make things click. There was a part, I've talked about this so many times on the podcast, but February, March, they, they had a great run. I know he's referenced the win at Coventry where they hit them for four. Coventry, one of the best teams in the league at that at that stage of the season. And they look fantastic. And then they've signed 19 players in the summer and gone backwards. And now, don't get me wrong, it's going to take time to bed in that amount of players and overhauling the squad, work out what the best formation is, what your best personnel combinations are. But that hasn't happened anywhere near quickly enough. The home form in particular has been turgid. Um, I think they've lost 16 of their 30 last 30 uh, championship home games at the Bet365 Stadium, which is just not good enough. And after the weekend's result, he said that he, he felt like he was letting the fans down and he was letting John Coates down. And I think this is interesting because I think this is clearly a bigger issue than an Alex Neal fails at Stoke City problem because Stoke City have got quite the scrap heap of impressive championship managers. Now, it didn't work for Nathan Jones, who's clearly had very good success at Luton Town. It didn't work for Gary Rowett, who's done a very good job at championship level with Millwall and with Birmingham. Michael O'Neill did a really good job with Northern Ireland. None of these managers, no matter how good or how good their pedigree or reputation is, can get Stoke City right. And I find it interesting because usually when that's the case and you've got a big club that's underachieving, there's usually a problem behind the scenes or there's something you can point at. And I, I sit there thinking, it's scandalous that Stoke City haven't finished in the top half of the table since they got relegated and something's got to change. But I don't know what that something is because they've got a good infrastructure. They've got, I think they've got the best, right up. their owners are right up there in terms of championship owners. They put a lot of money into the club. They support their managers. They give them time. They give them the authority to make the changes they feel is necessary. I don't see a problem at Stoke City in terms of the environment that these really good managers are going into, but there's something at Stoke City that turns very good managers into underachievers. And Alex Neal is the latest to fall foul of this Stoke City curse. Six wins in 20 this season is not good enough, just above the relegation zone. So I have no complaints with this decision and, and I think a change had to be made. But... This is clearly a bigger problem than Alex Neal and, and whoever goes into Stoke City now is has got the challenge of trying to turn this juggernaut around. They certainly have. And like you've said, they've tried several vastly experienced championship managers and they have all equally failed for one reason or another. And that is the, the problem that Stoke City have found themselves in. They have not been able to find the perfect match for them when on paper, when they've made the appointments, they've looked pretty good at solid bets. 
Alex Neal, as you mentioned, did a terrific job at Preston in what he had to work with over a few years there. Never really challenged for promotion, but they were always steady. They were always stable, always produced a surprise result now and again. Got Sunderland promoted. And you think even further back, let's not forget, he also got Norwich out of the championship against Middlesbrough back in 2015, I think it was. So this is a guy that's got a promotion from the championship on the CV, a promotion out of League One on the CV. And overall has been a very good manager wherever he's been. And it's just been a very sort of streaky time at Stoke City for him, really. They've gone good runs of form where you thought a change, uh, a transformation in fortunes was around the corner. Then they'd take one step backwards. Then they'd go again, put another little burst of form together, then take another step back. And that is exactly what has happened in the build-up to this decision being made. Because if you think back from following the October international break, between the October international break and the November international break, Stoke enjoyed that five-game unbeaten run. They won three games in a row. They beat Leeds. They won won away at Middlesbrough. And that win at Middlesbrough signalled a third win in a row. And it felt like a really significant result to go to the Riverside and win, bearing how well Borough have been at home under Michael Carrick over the past 12 months or so. And since then, they've not won. It's six games without a win now, four defeats in a row, and just three goals scored in six matches as well. That is the biggest concern. They are really struggling to put the ball in the net. And of course, Alex Neal can't be blamed solely for that. Your your players have got to take responsibility. He's not the one come three o'clock on a Saturday afternoon tasked with putting the ball in the net. But ultimately, when ruts of form set in like this, it is the manager that harbours the blame. And that is ultimately what has happened for Alex Neal. And I think when you look at Stoke City's form this season, it's been so up and down, mainly down for the most part. It is a decision that does feel like the right one. But the big question for this, but the big question mark that is now sort of hovering above Stoke City is who do they turn to now to bring the change that they've been looking for for the best part of four or five years? Because you look at their finishes in the championship since they dropped out of the Premier League in 2018. They've finished 16th, 15th, back-to-back 14th place finishes and then 16th again last season. So 14th place twice in the last five seasons is the best that they've mastered for a team that were, let's be honest, a, a very stable Premier League club for the best part of a decade. And will have spent uh, and they as were much all... as anyone since they got relegated in yeah, that time period. That, that was the thing. And let's not forget what Stoke achieved during that time. They, they got into the Europa League, they got to an FA Cup final. You know, they, they, they achieved good things and they were a club nine times out of ten that were always going to be stable in the Premier League, never going to be anything flashy. But you think back 2013, 14, 14, 15, 15, 16, they finished ninth in the Premier League three seasons in a row. And now they're a team that can't even break into the top half of the Championship. You think back to that first year under Gary Rowett back in 2018, 19, they chucked a hell of a lot of money at it. Benicophobia being one of the big money signs that they made that springs to mind. Comments. And since then, there's been big players that have come in, experienced players, and for whatever reason, it just hasn't worked out. Alex Neal felt like a good appointment last summer in August 2022. Poached from Sunderland and ultimately Sunderland got the better bargain in that deal with Tony Mowbray. So where, we'll talk where, do, about they, later where do they on. go next, George? Well, what do they need to do? Well, do they need a change of tact? Do they need to go younger? Do they need to the go thing. more of do a coach on the grass type that a lot of these clubs are going for at the minute? You look at Sheffield Wednesday with Danny Rill. You look at Liam Manning going to Bristol City. Is that the type of mould where they need to go? Younger, maybe, but there's not a lot of young. I don't. I, I struggle to advocate for a a manager that knows how to work with young players because there's not a lot of young players in that squad. Well, that's the thing, isn't it? And to be fair, I suppose you could realistically say the same about Sheffield Wednesday. There's not many young players in that team, but they've certainly bought into what Danny Rurley's trying to achieve at Hillsborough. And I'm sure we'll talk about Wednesday, who have ultimately ended Alex Neal's reign shortly. But I think Stoke now are in a position where maybe they do need to head down that avenue. Because, like we've said, we've we, they, they've gone with the tried and tested. They they went with Michael O'Neill, who's probably been the best of the bunch since they've got relegated from the Premier League five or six years ago. Gary Rowett didn't work out. Nathan Jones didn't work out. Alex Neal hasn't worked out. So it does beg the question is, is it a case of something structurally at this club needs to change? Is the squad in need of a massive overhaul? No, it happened in the summer. So what do you do? Because... The amount of players that they brought in in the summer, and like you mentioned earlier on, you're quite right, it does take time for any manager to bed in that number of new signings, especially when quite a few came from overseas. But at the same time, Stoke have been on this this trajectory of going nowhere, if you like, for, the, for a period of five years. So 
it's really, really hard to put your finger on where Stoke should go next because I think that the, the theory that they could go for a younger upcoming coach, which more and more championship clubs are doing. We've seen, like you mentioned there, Wednesday with Danny Royal, Millwall going with Joe Edwards not long ago. It does seem to be sort of the, the new modern trend that championship clubs are adopting. I mean, even, even last year, for example, Burnley with Vincent Company was still an up-and-coming coach, even though he managed at Anderlecht. So it is certainly a, a, a path that Stoke might want to explore. But at the moment, if I was to be absolutely truthful, and it would seem quite weird, I think for Stoke right now, and I don't know what his circumstances are, what he wants to do, I think they could do a hell of a lot worse than looking at Tony Mowbray, which would be quite weird going for another ex-Sunderland manager. You think John Eustace but, would be a better appointment? Well, John Eustace is another up-and-coming coach who has got quite By a bit way, of credit in I've the I've seen bank. people suggesting Graham Potter, and if Stoke City managed to acquire Graham Potter, <laughs> I will quit the podcast. Well, I think you're safe. I think you're safe. What, I don't what think that Graham Potter is going to go to the Potteries, let's be honest. I don't think that is going to happen. But no, I think someone like a Tony Mowbray, and I know that goes against the theory of a young up-and-coming manager, but Tony Mowbray, who again is another person, another topic we'll talk about later, I do think he would get this Stoke City side, certainly played a hell of a lot better than they have been in recent weeks. But I honestly, when you when you put me on the spot there to say who would you go for there is nobody really springing to mind that the names the likes of John Eustace Paul Heckingbottom are going to be the obvious go-tos at the moment with their availability but realistically there isn't anyone jumping out at me that I think could come in and immediately turn this around Nathan even though Jones. it's not impossible yeah Nathan Jones to come back why not but seriously who would you look at because we are seeing this this trend, this continuous cycle where whoever it is in the Stoke City dugout, it is not changing their fortunes. And like I said, their form has been so hit and miss. They go on two or three good game runs, then a four-game losing streak sets in. It's just really bizarre. And what did I say last season with Stoke City? I want to see some consistency with them. They are the kings of being inconsistent in this league. And at the moment, I just don't know who the man is to change that. But I don't think Alex Neal can have any sort of complaints about losing his job. It's been a really bad run that they've experienced. The first time they've lost four in a row since 2019 as well, which tells its own story. But it just it feels strange with the fact that they went on such a good run after the October international break, winning three in a row. That victory at Middlesbrough was the standout result. That was the last time that That's they won. That's their tenure all over, like isn't it? Though? Two steps forward, three steps back. That's just Alex Neal's yep. tenure at Stoke City. It is. And like I say, I just do not know where they go from here. It's a really, really difficult one to sort of place your bets on and say that is the man that they should turn to because are Stoke at a point where they go for a short-term fix just to... Because let's be honest, at the moment, they are a genuine relegation threat. They're not going like, to go there's down, nobody, though, are they? You wouldn't... Well, you can never say never. I this think if the they can get can Paul Heckingbottom, I would go and get Paul Heckingbottom. And I think if I could go well, and get... That's certainly oh, not failing that, I would go and get John Eustace, I think would be my... Yeah, it's my certainly time. not the worst shouts. But at the moment, as as we speak recording this, Stoke City at the moment are in a dogfight. There's no denying that. Whether you think they've got too much quality to go down or whatever, the stats don't lie at the moment. They're only two ahead I don't, of QPR. I don't think anyone's ever got too much and, quality to go I down. Think, I just don't think they will. I think, let's be honest as well... At the moment, as things stand, QPR, Sheffield Wednesday are in a better place in terms of current performances and results Absolutely. than what Stoke are. And they are starting to eat into that gap. And it is something that Stoke have got to look at. But just the question is, are Stoke in a position where they've pre-planned a replacement? Bearing in mind, we're recording this just four hours after Alex Neal's been given the chop. Have they got somebody lined up? Is it a case where seemingly in Rotherham's position who are still... Well, even though it looks like being Liam Richardson, it's not officially done yet. Is it going to be a case? Is it going to be a search that's going to take three, four weeks? I doubt it, but time will tell. But at the minute, saying as I say, we're recording this just a few hours after the news broke. I don't know who is sort of going to be the perfect man, but certainly John Eustace, Paul Heckingbomb, even Tony Mowbray. As I say, I don't think any of those fellas would be a bad shout. But it's just a case of is it going to bring the drastic change that Stoke City need? Because at this point. The fans are the re- uh, fans are restless. They've had enough, and you you can't blame them because their form is just so patchy. It's so poor and so inconsistent. But it's something that they've experienced now for the best part of half a decade. So, a lot of work to be done for whoever the new guy is. 
But um, at, the, at the same time, Stoke City's players certainly got to take a portion of the blame because they've been nowhere near good enough. Just very quickly on the game and the, the win for Sheffield Wednesday, <laughs> Danny Rill is on a roll. Uh, in truth, it was a terrible game, a real slog for most of the 90 minutes. The big moment obviously came when for Mayro was a judge to a foul Josh Lauren. I don't know what the referee's seen or is thinking there. It's never a penalty in a million years. So justice done when uh, Cameron Dawson denied Ryan Maie. And uh, then Antti Masaba stealing the win at the end. Lovely little move between uh, Smith and I think it was Byers and played through Masaba's lovely touch around the corner. Jedi Kasama. Yeah. Jedi Kasama set the pass. One-on-one, really good finish from Musaba. Big win for Sheffield Wednesday, back-to-back wins and a first away win of the season. Probably the premium game going into the weekend, George, was Middlesbrough and Ipswich Town. And the Tractor Boys came away with a 2-0 win at the Riverside Stadium. I think there was a fair few question marks over Ipswich, particularly away from home. Not one on the road in a month uh, after losing at West Brom, dropping points at Rotherham. But a clean sheet, which we've not seen many of. Three points and two excellently taken goals, first from Connor Chaplin and then Amari Hutchinson on the counter-attack. I'm not quite sure where Seni Dieng is for the second goal. He leaves a massive gap at his near post for Hutchinson to slide it into. But I think most impressive for me is the improvement defensively from Ipswich in this game, where they've gone to a very, very difficult place and a very good Middlesbrough side that we know create a lot of chances under Michael Carrick. And they restricted Middlesbrough to one shot on target and a very low XG, which is Ipswich probably at their best. And having seen... Uh, Leeds United laid down the gauntlet at half past 12 in the early kickoff, which we'll come on to, and, and Leicester also winning. This was a big, big win for Ipswich Town. Um, since the start of the championship, uh, no team apart from Leicester City has got more points after 20 games than Ipswich Town. So the, 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 the standard that these top two are setting is remarkable. We spoke about it last week where... You know, the points per game totals of Leeds and Southampton, particularly Leeds, would have them in the top two any other season. But the quality and the the level of performance in terms of picking up points, if nothing else, from Leicester and Ipswich is, is quite surreal. It certainly is. They're, they're on a roll, Ipswich, aren't they? And like I said a couple of weeks ago after that West Brom defeat, I felt it would be nothing more than a blip, an off day. And that's exactly what it's proven to be. They've won three in a row since then. And like you say, a rare clean sheet at the weekend. I think it was the first since the 25th of October when they went to Bristol City and won 1-0 at Ashton Gate. And it just goes to show that this John, uh, that this Kieran McKenna team is just a formidable side. They're absolutely relentless. And I think when you look at their recent set of results, they've, they've had quite a mixed bag of opponents. They had a, a few teams flirting with the bottom, uh, bottom of the table, such as your Birmingham's and your Rotherham's, who they drew with both. Then they played a Swansea who have not been faring too much better than those. And they had a Coventry who are up and coming, beat them, beat Millwall and Middlesbrough, arguably the sternest test aside from West Bromwich Albion that they faced and they came through it. But I think the, the most remarkable statistic for me about this Ipswich Town team is this calendar year alone now, 42 league matches they've played. Obviously, that, that takes into account the second half of the League One campaign last year. 97 points from 126 available is what they've amassed. It's an absolutely phenomenal return. 97 points from 126. It just goes to show that this team is just driving forward with such belief and such momentum and such confidence flowing through their veins. And that's a big thing because when you get promoted in the manner that Ipswich did when they went on that remarkable run towards the end of last season, it's going to do wonders for confidence and momentum. And that's just carried over into this season. But as I've said time and time again in the last few weeks about this Ipswich team, it would have been easy to consider your, to consider your thoughts in the sense that Ipswich spent a hell of a lot of money in the summer and drafted in a high calibre of players to, to replace those that got the job done out of League One. Kieran McKenna hasn't done that. He's stuck with virtually the same team that got them promoted last season. When you look at that team that started at the weekend, I think every single member of that 11, except for Jack Taylor, um, was at Ipswich last season, which which just goes to show just how good a coach Kieran McKenna is. The fact that he's managed to take these players from sort of stagnating in League One for so long, that, that group of players anyway, until he came in. And now they're just coasting in the championship. They look such a formidable threat. And it is just a case of, 
nobody seems to be able to stand in their way and stop them. They just power through whatever's up against them. And like I said last week, this little run that Ipswich have got between now and between now and New Year, shall we say, is going to be one that I think defies their season in terms of if they genuinely have got what it takes to go all the way. They've passed the first test, that being Middlesbrough. Watford away midweek, not the easiest of assignments. Watford on a decent run at the minute and relatively hard to beat at Vicarage Road. Then it's them three games. Norwich, obviously the big derby game next Saturday. Leeds away a couple of days before Christmas Day. And then Leicester at home on Boxing Day evening. What a game that promises to be, Boxing Day night. I mean, I'm looking forward to sitting down and watching that. Can't wait for it. So I think Norwich, Leeds, Leicester... Those three games, two of them at home, one obviously a big derby, two against the two teams directly competing with them. This will show us just how good the Sipswich team is, but I would not bet against them coming through it with six points from nine. I really wouldn't. I think Leeds will be a challenge. Leeds very, very good at Ellen Road at the moment, but I would not bet against them toppling Leicester at Portman Road on Boxing Day. But obviously Watford will be their, their first objective. They've got them on Tuesday night. Then it's the big one against Norwich which we know a derby game, anything can happen. We know that. It's naive to rule it out. But I think this is the period where we'll see. But I think it's just similarly sort of to Leicester now, it's which way you look at them and think, game at the weekend, tick that one off, on to the next one. Middlesbrough, worth mentioning, a lot of injury issues at the minute. Michael Carrick having a lot to deal with on that score. So I think it's important to take that into account. Borough's form just stumbling a little bit, but that is, that is to be expected with the amount of bodies that Michael Carrick's without at the moment. So... A bit of a disappointing day for them, but I'm sure they'll bounce back. And once the squad fully recovers, I think they'll be okay. And to say they're 12th, they're still only three points off the top six, which proves just how much this battle for the playoffs, again, for a second year in a row, is looking as though it could go right down to the wire. But Borough, disappointing, but you've got to take into the injuries into account. Yeah, absolutely. Leicester City kept up the pace at the top. They beat Plymouth 4-0. Quite a tight game in the first half, and it wasn't until the second goal went in that things opened up for the Foxes. Mavadidi um, with an early penalty, but uh, Stefan Bundu had a really good chance to make it one all. saved by Hermanson. It wasn't a great finishing truth. Lovely ball through by Morgan Whitaker, who's playing with so much confidence at the minute. But if you're going to get a result at the King Power Stadium, those have got to go in the back of the net, really, and at such a decisive moment in the game. And then, of course, Leicester hit Plymouth with a, a ramp in 10 minutes after half-time to go from 1-0 up to 4-0 up. First, a long ball over the top, which... The defence didn't really deal with Fatuo squaring for Patson Daka on his first league start to make it two. Uh, then Mavadidi started taking the piss a little bit, didn't he, with that with that third goal. <laughs> Jinking inside, chopping back on his left foot and firing with pace through the crowd of bodies for 3-0. And then Wilfred Ndidi, who, as I, as I keep saying, his improvement in the final third is so impressive. Really good finish for 4-0. And all these goals came in a rampant 10 minutes after half-time where Leicester City went from controlling but not really incisive enough and then getting a bit of a scare with that chance for Bundu. And then Leicester really stepping up and showing their quality and, and going 4 nil up. And it's a good job they did, George, because Leeds United put down a bit of a statement win at Blackburn Rovers in the early kickoff. They won 2-0 at Ewood Park. There's now a nine-point gap between third and fifth. There is a five-point gap between fifth and 13th. And I think what that underlines, as we already knew, is there are four premium teams in the championship this season. In truth, I think Southampton are... I think, I think there's three really good teams. And I think there's one team that is a lot better than the playoff chasers, but not quite as good as the automatic top top three that are battling it out. If I'm, I think Southampton are probably a little bit below Leeds, Ipswich and Leicester's level, but definitely better than than the the chasing pack. And Leeds were really good value at Ewood Park, obviously the game I was at. Um, it was quite an even game across the pitch, but again, the difference was the final third. Two clinical goals in transition from Leeds. We know how dangerous they are on the counter-attack. The first one, a Blackburn attack. Jorginho Ruta picks up the ball, shrugs off James Hill after a bit of a comedy tangle, feeds it to Dan James. Clinical finish through the legs of Harry Pickering into the far corner. That's now an eighth goal of the season for Ruter, who has the best expected assist numbers in the championship, which is not bad for a number nine. And then the second goal, Archie Gray, lovely one-two, feeds Somerville and a classy finish, lifting it over Leopold Walstead for two. As I say, Blackburn were probably the better side in the second half in terms of territory. 
they they certainly pushed Leeds in that second half and Leeds had to be resolute. But it wasn't until the last 10 minutes that Ilan Meslier really had a save to make and that was tipping over a header from Arna Sigurdsson. So Leeds are in imperious form. They've taken 28 points from the last 11 games and normally with the points tally, they've got 41 from the first 20. That's good enough for top spot, usually, second at worst. So to be third in this race is really, again, a testament to the pace that we are seeing set by Leicester City and Ipswich Down because Leeds were fantastic. And the thing is, they, they don't need to dominate every area of the pitch to win a football match because of the quality they've got in the final third. Blackburn were decent, but it just showed the difference between Blackburn, who are a team that are trying to get fifth or sixth, and Leeds United, who have every chance of being in that top two come May because they've got that quality in the final third, particularly in their uh, attack to go and beat anyone. You know, you try and stop Somerville, James will get you. You try and stop the wings, Piro and Ruta will combine and they will create openings. So really, really good performance from Leeds United. Impressed by Kamara and Ampadu in midfield and a big three points to again show Ipswich and Leicester they're going to have to keep going because they are not going away. No, definitely not. And I'll just, just touch on Leicester first because... Watching the highlights of that game, the Leicester-Plymouth game on Saturday evening, Plymouth gave Leicester a good go in the first half by all accounts. There was a lot of chances in there. That Certainly the Mustafa Bundu one, when he went through one-on-one, that he really should have taken. And that was a key key moment in the game. Because if that goes in, if Plymouth, Plymouth get themselves level, who knows how it could have developed. But Leicester obviously just had too much quality at that start, that second half, that little little trio of quick-fire goals that they, they plundered very, very quickly, one after another at the start of the second half. Just obviously got the job done and in the end it looked like being a bit of a rout but Leicester as you say that they needed that obviously to reopen that little bit of a gap up obviously after Leeds had won a few hours earlier against Blackburn Rovers at Ewood Park seen the highlights of that game as well and it ultimately was a result of Leeds' quality in the final third and how many times have we, have we said this in the last few weeks the likes of Rutaire, Somerville uh, and Daniel James they're just at the heart of everything that Leeds United do and I think the fact that when Leeds obviously signed Joel Perrault in the summer, we all sort of automatically guessed that he'd be the main source of goals in that team. And don't get me wrong, he's chipped in with a few since he made the switch to Ellen Road. But it's Somerville and James that seem to be the, the main men at this moment in time. And you look at their form in the last few weeks and it's it's absolutely terrific. I think, I think since the international break in October, Daniel James has scored six goals. And Somerville's got seven and Somerville's also got four assists. Ruter obviously has been very, very good in the last few weeks. And ultimately for Leeds now, it's six wins in the last seven games. It's seven games unbeaten. It's just one defeat since the, the beginning of October. And they look a really, really good side. It's it, it, Again, I'm going back to that same old point in the sense that Leeds had a bit of a slow start. They were playing catch-up a little bit. Their recruitment was a little bit obviously delayed in the summer because they had to shift players out first. They won one of their first five games. They'd won two of the first seven, in fact. But they've been on such a good run. And in some ways, that 3-1 defeat to Southampton at the end of September was a bit of a turning point, really, in Leeds this season. Like I say, only lost one since then. But Daniel Falk is doing a terrific job. And I felt when he got the job that it was a good move. He knows what it takes to get out of this league. He's working... And that this is with no disrespect to Norwich because he had some very good players in his time at Carrow Road. But he's working with a far better team now than what he had there, certainly in forward areas. For me, it's, it's the best front four in the Championship by an absolute country mile what Leeds United have got at their disposal at the moment. Somerville's making it look easy. Dan James is going from strength to strength. Perrault obviously knows the league like the back of his hand from the last two years. And Ruta, at the end of the day, is, is a big money signing. They, like, they paid a lot of money to bring him to Ellen Road when they were in the Premier League. So you would expect them, and that is something a lot of fans of other clubs have said, haven't they, in recent weeks? They've said, what do you expect from this Leeds front four? That they've paid a hell of a lot of money for all of it. What, what do you expect at this level? You've still, got, you've still got to go out there and do the job, and that's exactly what they're doing. So Leeds looking a good bet at the moment to keep this run going. Tough run coming up, Sunderland the way midweek and then back-to-back home games, Coventry and Ipswich, certainly not easy ones. Coventry improving Ipswich, we've already talked about what a massive game that is. So a tough run for Leeds in the next few weeks between now and the end of the year. Trip to West Brom as well in there, Carlos Corbran connection and all that. And ultimately, this is going to be a big period for Leeds, but you'd back them with the fun they're in right now to get a good haul of points from it. I think that's the thing. And if they can keep this up, 
and, and potentially beat Ipswich at Ellen Road on the 23rd, then they're going to be right in the thick of this battle heading into the second half of the season. So if they can just keep chipping away and hope either Le- uh, Leicester or Ipswich slip up, who knows? But at the moment, Leeds looking very, very good for Blackburn. Like you say, ultimately, it was the quality that Leeds had in the final third that was the difference. But I suppose in... And it's not just sort of a reflection of saying this off the back of a defeat to a very good team who, are, who, who have got better quality than Blackburn, let's be truthful. But Blackburn's home record, just a little bit concerned at the They've minute, lost I think. It's, six games it's, at home in the Championship. It's the same amount they lost yeah, last season. For some reason, that's the, what form, I mean. the form it's, has It's a back step, that one. It is a step backwards, no doubt about it. So... Hopefully they can improve it, but I think Gondal Thomas will be looking to correct it in some way. But back-to-back defeats is disappointing for Blackburn, but you've got to remember that they were up against a very, very good team on Saturday. Absolutely. Sunderland sacked Tony Mowbray last week, George, and then beat West Brom 2-1. Let's deal with Mowbray first. I think the fact that Sunderland are now sixth after the weekend results sums up to me how shambolic a decision this is. Because the reason Tony Mowbray has been sacked is because he overachieved last season by getting them into the playoffs, which he never should have done and was never the expectation. I know that some Sunderland fans felt that it was time for a change because of some of the decisions he made. And obviously having covering Blackburn, although I only covered the back end of Tony Mowbray's reign, I know there were some baffling decisions there as well. He does do things tactically that don't quite make much sense and confuse you. But they were onto a good thing to have. They've got no centre forward. To, to be playing Joe Bellingham up front for most of the season as they have, who again is only a teenager who hadn't played that many minutes at Birmingham before they invested in him in the summer. When you've got such a young group of players that you're willing to get rid of Danny Bart, who was your player of the year last year, because he's 32 I think if that's going to be your model, that's fine. But what do you want? Do you want to develop young players and create a player trading model, or do you want to get promoted? And if you want to play a trading model, which is what the tool, those are the tools you're giving Tony Mowbray. Don't expect him to guarantee promotion because they're sixth still. They were three points off the playoffs, and they're now in sixth. So I just think that this is everything that's wrong with modern football because I think you've got a manager who was very good at working with young talent, who was who had a squad in the right, you know, they were in the right areas. They've had injuries. They sold their striker on deadline day. They're in the right sort of area. Yeah, we'd like them to be, I'm sure some of the fans like to be fifth rather than eighth, for example, but they're now back in sixth. The championship changes so quickly. And as I said, there's five points between fifth and 13th. You don't need to do a lot to go from the bottom of that to the top of that. And Sunderland were already near the top of that pack. So for me, this really this really rang, uh, wrangles with me. I don't think that, it's good for football to be making these sort of decisions. But ultimately, if Sunderland go and get someone who's better in their eyes or achieves more and gets Sunderland promoted, it will be a vindicated decision. But did Tony Mowbray deserve to lose his job on the merits of the performances of the team and where they were in the table? Absolutely not. I don't even know where to start on this one. When the when the news broke, literally an hour after Michael Duff had left Swansea, it was a bit of a... Bit of a crazy evening, wasn't it? Was it last Tuesday night? I think it was Tuesday, wasn't it? I think it was. Forgive me if I'm wrong. I think it was Tuesday. But I just, I couldn't believe it. I really couldn't believe it. I thought, yeah, they've had a little bit of a, a sticky run of form. It's been a little bit underwhelming. But they're still in a very good position. And to me, already, depending on who they appoint as Tony Mowbray's successor, it screams to me a repeat of what hap- is going to happen, of what has happened at Birmingham City. You, you've traded in a very good manager who is clearly on to something, who is clearly getting a lot out of a very young and inexperienced group, got them to the playoffs last season, and you've just thrown it all away for potentially what is a gamble on what is seemingly going to be a fairly unknown manager if the, the betting odds and the rumours are to be believed. So I think it's an almighty gamble that the Sunderland hierarchy have taken. There was obviously talk, wasn't there, immediately, literally the morning after that, defeat to Luton in the second leg of the playoffs back in May that Tony Mowbray was going to lose his job and at the at the time I actually took to Twitter and I actually said that it would be absolutely scandalous if Sunderland made this decision to sack him there and then referencing what he'd done what he'd achieved against all odds this season
back into the top six places. But I just think, why would you get rid of a manager who's done so much in a very, very short space of time, work wonders, It just doesn't make any sense to me. And if I was Tony Mowbray, those Sunderland fans have, uh, have clearly said that he would be welcome back at any point if he came up with an opposing club and leaves with his respect fully intact and with his head held high. I just think ultimately Sunderland, they've absolutely shafted him, to be honest with you. I really do. I'm saying this obviously as a neutral. Sunderland fans may think differently, but I just think this is a huge mistake. And ultimately... Time will tell if I'm right. I may be totally wrong. They may bring the new guy in and he may work wonders and take them to even greater heights. But from where I'm sitting, I just think Sunderland have thrown away something that was working, working really well. Yeah, their form had taken a little bit of a nosedive. What teams doesn't over a 46-game forty-six season in the Championship? Every team experiences it. I'm sure Leicester and Ipswich will have a bit of a dip at some point. It happens. But like you say, Sunderland in the top six, the situation's ever-changing. At the end of the day, they're only two points off fifth, which, you know, is where they finished last season. Uh, no, finished sixth last season, should I say. They're in the position where they finished last season now. But ultimately, I just, I don't understand it. I can understand the Sunderland hierarchy wanting to go for a younger, maybe a more attractive name. But surely Tony Mowbray deserved a hell of a lot more credit for, for what he'd done from them. But... Time will tell, but for me, just think it's a massive own goal from Sunderland. I really do, and I feel sorry for Tony Mowbray, to be honest. On the game itself, obviously a really good win for Sunderland to beat West Brom. Um, and in fairness, I think they'd have been pretty furious if they hadn't because the decision to rule out Joe Bellingham's goal for offside is very, very scandalous. Poor, very, very poor officiating, you have to say. To the naked eye, it was quite clear as soon as you see, you think the angle, like he's got the perfect sort of viewpoint as well because it's the defender on his side, so he should be able to see straight down the line. Um, obviously, Sunderland then get themselves in front in the 70th minute through Ballard with a good header, and then the second goal is a brilliant breakaway, a sumptuous ball from Pritchard into Dan Neal. Dan Neal not famed for scoring goals, but the composure he showed to just sit down um, Alex Palmer and, and chip the ball in. Palmer, who had a very mixed game because he had made a few bad mistakes, you know, for the Bellingham goal, obviously he should do a lot better that got ruled out. Um, but then he pulled off some good saves towards the end as well. But Pritchard into Neil, lovely finish, 2-1. Big win for Sunderland, gets them back into the top six. Coventry City, George, on Friday night, produced probably their one of their best performances of the season, beating Birmingham City 2-0. Really enjoyed this from a Coventry perspective. And we will, don't worry, we will come on to Birmingham. But I really enjoyed this from a Coventry perspective. An attacking lineup, 4-3-3, Van Iwerk getting heavily involved from right back and a midfield free of Callum O'Hare, Jamie Allen and Ben Sheaf is quite tantalising. Very attack-minded, very front-footed, in your face and I thought Coventry played really well. O'Hare took his goals, particularly the second one, really well because that level of composure where he jinxed past a couple of challenges for the second is the sort of match sharpness that you lose when you've been out for the period of time that he has and I think it could be really easy to forget that Callum O'Hare before he got injured was on the same level of importance to this Coventry team as Giocares, as Gustavo Harmer. So to have him back is a massive, massive boost. He, he probably is their best player. Now he's fit again. And I like this 4-3-3 system with Cobb. I think they've got the midfielders to do it. Still think they're a little bit, probably could do with bolstering their options in wide forward areas. You know, they've got Hadji Wright and Sacramento playing there right now. Um, probably could do with someone more natural on the left that can be a bit like Sereki Dembele, for example. Um, from a Birmingham point of view, Coventry were very good, but they didn't need to be very good to beat a very poor Birmingham team. They've taken five points from 27 since Wayne Rooney came in. It's the worst record during that time in the Championship. They've dropped from 6th to 17th, and they're now only four points above the relegation zone. And I think there is a massive, massive danger that Birmingham City could get relegated this season because with the rate of points that QPR and Sheffield Wednesday are now in picking up and also improving, they're in danger because they are the worst team in the Championship right now. You'd have to say alongside Rotherham United at the minute, 
But QPR and Wednesday are much improved and are playing like mid-table teams at the moment over the last sort of six games. Um, and Birmingham are playing like a bottom three team. The fans are completely disillusioned with the decision to make it. I don't... It's not... You know, if you were looking at Birmingham and you were thinking, I can see I can see what they're doing, but the players just can't, aren't capable. The squad's not built for it. You'd cut them a bit of slack. I haven't got a clue what type of football they're trying to play. And Wayne Rooney's had nine games in charge now, and I don't know what style and identity they're trying to implement that's different to John Eustace other than they're far easier to play against. And that's a damning indictment of Rooney. And I think the fact that Rooney's best spell came with Liam Rossini behind him as assistant manager can't be swept under the carpet because whatever he's doing on the training pitch or whoever's running training for him, those messages are not getting across to the players one bit. And Birmingham are going to end up in the bottom three if they carry on in this sort of nosedive the way they are at the moment. Without a doubt, it's this is going the exact way that everybody saw coming, isn't it? Let, let's be honest. Everybody anticipated that this move of the Birmingham And so far, it's doing exactly that. They've won one game since he took the job so far. That was against Sheffield Wednesday, who, who were bottom of the league at the time. And since then, they've they've lost at Blackburn, they've lost at Coventry and only managed a nil-nil draw at home to Rotherham, of course, are absolutely atrocious away from home. But like you said there, they didn't really have to do a lot to look that good. Birmingham were just so poor. And Birmingham really, to be fair, it's quite weird because the first five, ten minutes, Birmingham actually started quite brightly. They tried to get on the front foot and tried to get in Coventry's faces. But it was almost like after ten minutes, they'd run out of energy and had enough. And that was it. It was just Coventry, Coventry, Coventry. And if it wasn't for John Ruddy, Coventry probably could have scored three or four more. They were absolutely dominant. Certainly in that second half, so many chances came and went. Had you right, spurned one. Callum O'Hare could have had one or two more. There was just so many opportunities that came and went. But Birmingham, it's just an absolute car crash. And ultimately, everybody saw it coming. Everybody said it, didn't they, when Wayne Rooney got this job? Yeah, apart from Gary Cook. And let's be honest, as I said at the time, Birmingham looked at this appointment and thought, oh, Wayne Rooney might get us a few more Twitter followers and a few more Instagram followers. That's all they likes get us a, a big interaction from the national media and that'll do us fine oh but there's just one caveat in that we might start losing games of football and playing absolutely rubbish and that's exactly what's happened and John Eustace is probably sat at home now probably thinking thing in his career to warrant getting this job and like I tweeted out towards the end of the game on Friday night Birmingham got so much credit in the bank for what they did over the summer. Their recruitment was absolutely superb. We wax lyrical about it. A lot of fans of other championship clubs praised it, saying that they'd brought in really, really good players. Clearly a team that were on the up. They'd recruited to John Eustace's needs. They they started the season brightly. They were looking good. They were on a decent run when he got the when he got the hacks, to be fair. And, you know, ultimately now. Birmingham are just making themselves look absolutely stupid. The Birmingham hierarchy, that is. It's certainly not the supporters' fault. I feel sorry for them because they finally thought that things were changing at that club after so many years of disappointment and, and letdown and frustration. They thought that things were looking up again, and they were. Birmingham, when they, when they sacked John... ...danger of being relegated, so... Who, except for in the mind of Gary Cook, thought this was a good idea? I don't think you'd find many people. But for Coventry, looking at the positives, uh, like we say, as, as poor as Birmingham were, I thought Coventry looked really good on Friday night. Brilliant to see Callum O'Hare back in the goals. Until the, the final third finishing let him down, but you can certainly see that there's a player in there and when I did some research on him in the summer when they brought him in, I thought, yeah, good sign with a lot of room for growth and potential. You can see there is a there is a good player in there. He's just waiting to go on that little bit of a run. And I'm sure the goals will come for him. 
But you'd back Mark Robbins to be a manager to unlock his potential. Mark Robbins has done a sterling job and Coventry ever so slowly now just beginning to climb that table. And remarkably, though they're only they're in 15th, they're only five points adrift of the playoffs. So obviously a lot of traffic to get through and a lot of results to go their way. But by the time we sit down and record next Sunday's episode, they could be in the top six, which is absolutely baffling when they're currently 15th. So let's see how they progress. But they're turning the screw now. I think it's three wins in four games. Obviously, that defeat was at Ipswich, where there's not really any disgrace of losing to Ipswich at Portman Road the way they're going. But things looking up for Coventry and for Callum O'Hare, a a brilliant way to to be back uh, and back in the goals after just his second start after so long out. Swansea City won at Rotherham United, George, to kickstart the post-Michael Duff era. Of course, he was the first of the two sackings last Tuesday, an infamous night for Championship managers. I feel, again, a bit torn with this one because I look at the squad, I look at the league position, not that far off what I expected for Swansea City this season, to be quite honest, especially given how congested the middle of the table is. And I think ultimately this decision was made because of the style and the cultural fit, as it were, playing the Swansea way, which obviously is to dominate possession, um, to be easy on the eye. And I think it's fair to say Michael Dust football is a little bit more, not direct, but a little bit faster paced in terms of they're, they're quite happy to go back to front a little bit quicker, a bit more direct, but I don't mean that in terms of route one. I mean that in terms of literally how quickly you're moving the ball from front to back. Um, and I think you can personally look at it in two ways. I think you can say the strength in identifying a bad decision made in the summer and rectifying it. Or you can look at it in my view, which is it's a weakness for not having the courage and your conviction to back your first decision, which was to give Michael Duff the job in the first place. I think Swansea fans ultimately never really took to Michael Duff because of some of the things he said in the media. And maybe he came off across, maybe just didn't suck up to the fans as much as they might have hoped for and liked and got used to as managers so often do, and, and just told it how it was a little bit. And I don't think the fans like that, really. So I don't think anyone's gutted about that. And they'll say, well, we'd rather you make this decision now and change it. For me, I think if you're going to make the decision to appoint him in the first place, you've got to stick with it. And you've got to back yourself and you've got to have the courage and your conviction. They didn't do that. Swansea fans seem quite happy he's gone. Again, I, f- I, don't, I don't think he was doing a bad job. I think that the squad, again... It's a bottom half squad, it is. They sold Joel Perot in the summer, who was their premium talent, and they signed Jerry Yates, who was a decent championship striker, but he's not Joel Perot's quality. And they've got some decent loan players. You know, Nathan Wood's out injured at the minute. They've got Charlie Patino, who's having a good season. They've got Matt Grimes, who's always going to be a good player, but they've got a they've got a bottom half championship squad that will finish somewhere between, you know, tenth at absolute best and probably seventeenth at worst. So to be in that sort of realm, to sack Michael Duff after 20 games or 19 games, I think is, I just don't like the decision. I think you've got to stick with it. But they're entitled to me. If they think that ultimately it's not going to work because of things off the pitch, then ultimately I suppose it's better to make that decision now rather than later. But I just, I just, yeah, just unnecessary. Just a bit of a waste of everyone's time is kind of how I feel about it. I must admit, when when I saw the news come through, I saw it about 15, 20 minutes after the news had broke. I'd, I'd not been on my phone for that amount of time and I spotted it and I was like, blimey, I, did, I didn't see that one coming. Obviously, read some of the comments from Swansea fans who were absolutely delighted by it and I was surprised. Obviously, I, I, I don't sort of follow the, the comments of Swansea City fans every weekend to see how they're thinking that things are going. I don't see Swansea play every single week. Admittedly, results hadn't been great. ideas across and fully implemented. So I was a bit surprised by it, I must admit. But judging by the the reaction of the Swansea fans, they were absolutely delighted by the decision. But it was always going to be a challenge for him to come in and sort of get them punching in the top half of the table, to be fair. Because like you say, it's it's not the best squad in the world. They lost Joel Perot in the summer. They also lost key figures such as Ryan Manning. Joel Latabodier left as well. You know, that's two key parts of the defence that have gone. Olivier and Cham was sold. He he had his moments last season, I think it's fair to say, and in the year before. Morgan Whitaker, though he barely played, they made the decision to sell him, which just seemed baffling at the time and even more so now. 
So I think realistically, what could you have expected Michael Duff to fully do? Don't you on the recruitment in the summer? Certainly the loan signings was, was quite shrewd, actually, I thought. The, the additions of Jamal Lowe, Charlie Patino, who's been probably one of Swansea's biggest successes Rushworth's so far this been season. pretty good in goal as well. Rushworth. Josh right back. Yeah, I was going to mention Carl Rushworth. I like what I saw of him at Lincoln City last season. Looked like a goalkeeper then alone from Brighton. So th- there are some good players within that team, but it's not what you would consider as a team capable of pushing in. Him from Michael Duff, and obviously we're saying this for a lot of teams tonight because of how tightly packed this league table is at the moment, and there's of course a lot of traffic between Swansea and those positions. But they are only six points off the playoffs, even though it doesn't probably feel like it for the results that they've had and the way that they've played certainly in recent weeks. So I think you can understand. You could probably see this one from both sides of the argument in the sense that the Swansea board felt it just wasn't going to work out already. And then on the other side, you probably think to Michael Duff, he's coming off the back of two very good spells at Cheltenham and Barnsley, where he achieved a lot in terms of getting fans on side, good playing style, got a promotion at Cheltenham, nearly got Barnsley up last season. But ultimately, for whatever reason, the Swansea board don't think it's going to work out and they've decided to pull the trigger within, what, five months, six months? So... I think they will go down the route of a young upcoming manager. I know they approached the Tottenham reserve boss last week, an approach that was rejected. His name has escaped my mind. Um, I think, was it Chris Davis? I think it was something like that. See if they go back in for him or go elsewhere, but it's going to be interesting what Swansea do, but, I suppose at the at the weekend at Rotherham, obviously, no disrespect to Rotherham, but what, it's certainly what, one of the the what, easier fixtures you'd like. What was Daniel Ayala doing for the second one? Why I are they going? Do, why really are they going know. to try and win the ball in in the in the Swansea <laughs> half? You're an aging centre back that can't run. Why are you trying to win the ball in the Who in knows? the opposition's half on a yellow card? A player of that experience, an absolutely bonkers decision. Yeah, and I'm sure Wayne Carlisle, the interim Rotherham boss, will have had a word with him at half-time and probably an even bigger one after the game when they'd lost the game. So, yeah, it was it was a bad day for Rotherham in that sense. And for them, they just need to get this manager situation sorted. It's gone on for too long. It's just taken far too long and... Obviously, Nathan Jones is a man that they thought they were on to last weekend. Jones watched the, the nil-nil draw at Birmingham and then obviously decided it wasn't for him. Now it seemingly looks like... ...and I thought he was harshly sacked at Wigan and we both said that at the time. Definitely. It feels like an appointment to rebuild back, to get him back into the Championship rather than to keep them there now. And I think with though I think when you look at it, certainly in the last two or three weeks, the way Sheffield Wednesday and QPR have just slowly started to turn the screw, even though Rotherham are still on equal points with Sheffield Wednesday, only bottom on goal difference, I think QPR and Wednesday could might get the same, but Rotherham haven't got, say, a Chris Willock and Ilias Chair to produce their moments of quality, those moments of class in moments. So, Tony Stewart, the Rotherham owner, has taken his time over this. I think it's fair to say he's, he's obviously gone about this with a, a a fine tooth comb, shall we say, and gone through it very carefully. And seemingly Liam Richardson is his man, but maybe not necessarily his first choice man. Nathan Jones looked as though he was that man. So, Rotherham just need to get this wrapped up. Sean Morrison, the Rotherham defender, said after the game on Saturday that we just need some clarity on this. Ultimately, we need to get an answer. We need it sorting out. And ultimately, with the run that Rotherham are on, that's exactly what they need. So another damaging defeat. But for Swansea, let's see if it's a, a turn in their fortunes and where they go next.
Yeah, Rotherham were four points adrift of safety when they sacked Matt Taylor. Now eight points adrift of safety and bottom of the league. A lot of reason for that concern is because Queen's Park Rangers keep on winning football matches, George. Martin Sifuentes' side have got three wins on the bounce. As you've just said, the difference is they've got Sharon Willock, which all the other teams around the bottom don't have players of that quality on an individual basis. Brilliant finish from Willock to curl it into the bottom corner. Back to scoring worldies after a year off playing football. Um, why Gareth Ainsworth wasn't utilising him and Chair? I don't. Well, I do know, but bonkers. Um, Chris Willock was one of the best players in the championship. Didn't play for a year to come back. Now playing like again, scoring goals like he's one of the best players in the championship. Obviously, still needs that consistency. Elias Chair, brilliant as well, getting the second. They did have, they did ride their luck at times. Don't get me wrong. Begovic made some excellent saves tonight. Scott Twine, McLaughlin, um, Liam DeLapp has won the first half. But QPR far, far improved. They've got match winners, which the other teams around them don't have to the same quality. And they are now only two points away from safety, which is some going. It certainly is. And myself, like probably the majority of the QPR fan base, when Marty Sifuentes was appointed, was probably turning to our trustworthy friend Google to find out who on earth this fellow was. And already we know exactly who he is. He's a manager that's come in and has got QPR playing a brand of football that the QPR fans have been absolutely they've desperate been, for. They've improved the defensively last 12, a lot though as well, haven't they? It's they not, certainly have. We talk about Chair and Willock a lot, obviously, with, with the upturn in form, but they, defensively, they are far tighter. They are far more structured as a unit as well. So it's not just someone that's improved on the ball, but off the ball too. Yeah, definitely. And I watched the game against Preston a week last Friday night when they won 2-0 at Deepdale. And they didn't really have an awful lot to deal with in a defensive sense that game, uh, in that game. Against Hull, it was different. They, Hull had their moments and they had a fair share of chances. Uh, ultimately, they just couldn't find a way through. But when you look at Cuba, He's really good going for a team that was struggling desperately prior to Sifuentes' appointment. And it's three wins in a row now. That's no mean feat at this level. Whatever team you are, we know how hard it is to string a run together in the Championship. But I look at QPR's upcoming games this coming week. Plymouth at home on Tuesday night. Now that is... Um, Wednesday night, should I say. that That is a game that, you know, is... Really, really one that QPR should be going to win because Plymouth, as good as they've been this season at home, they are really finding it tough away from home. They're yet to win on the travels. QPR, back-to-back home wins. The amount of confidence they're going to have gained from this run is going to be good. And then the big game that we mentioned between ourselves That is all of a sudden an almighty game because... Obviously, it depends on how QPR and Wednesday get on in the week. But say that the current gap is still at six points as it is as we record this on Sunday evening going into that game. It's a massive game, for, certainly for Wednesday, to potentially bridge that gap to three points or all of a sudden be nine points behind QPR. So the QPR Owls game at the weekend is a really, really big one. And to be quite honest with you, I, it's a game I'm going to be attending and all of a sudden a game that a few weeks ago you probably would have thought at and looked at and thought that is going to be an absolutely turgid game of football. It's going to be horrendous. It's going to be scrappy. It's going to be horrible to watch. All of a sudden, based on recent showings from both teams, it's got the potential to be quite a decent game, to, to be honest, especially with what's at stake, even though it's still you know, relatively early into the Big game at the weekend, but for QPR, for Marty Sifuentes, who I must say, as an individual, comes across really, really well. Seems a really likeable guy. I think he's seemingly at the moment, obviously results will will do it for any manager, but he seems like the perfect fit. And I mean, where QPR found him uh, and what led their search to him, who knows? But at the moment, it certainly seems to be working. The QPR fans at long last have got something to smile about and they're enjoying the football again. Yeah, absolutely. And then finally to round off the weekend, Cardiff City got an important win beating Millwall 1-0. Not a classic game. Subs made a big difference for Cardiff with Mete and Rolls in particular coming on and making a difference. And it was Rolls' corner that was headed in by Demetrius Gutas. 
10 minutes before time. After a few trickier results, um, Cardiff for seventh, and right in that mix of teams that we've been speaking about, with a chance of getting in the playoff places. So I think you know it's a it's it wasn't a sparkling performance, it wasn't a great game, but after 20 league matches, it's a good time to take stock and just say what a great job Ariel Bullet's doing with Cardiff seventh place after 20 games, far exceeding the expectations we had based on the quality of the squad. Oh, without a doubt, he's done a really, really good job. And I would say, probably with the exception of, of Ipswich, probably the surprise package of the season, I think I'd say at this moment in time. I don't think anybody realistically saw this coming. Yeah, I would have because probably, probably struggled to disagree wait, wait, with that. When you look at what they did last season, we all pointed out how they, they desperately needed goals in that team. And they went out, they brought Carlin Grant in, they brought Josh Bowler in. Brought Yako Mate in, Ugbo came in, just to name a few. Michael Darren Ratley as well, who's been injured for quite a long Yeah, time. that's the thing. But it seems to have been, certainly defensively in midfield, the overall structure of the team seems to have improved a lot under Bullet. They seem a lot more cohesive. The floor of the team, dare I say it, to go back to my floor and yeah, feeling they, analogies. They, they seem a lot more together, if that's the word I'm looking for. They seem a lot more of a unit, a lot more structured and just united as one, really. And... I think Errol Bullet obviously came in as a complete unknown to many people in this country, probably everybody in this country, and he's done a really good job. And the home form has been much improved, though I couldn't believe it was their first home win since September at the weekend. I couldn't believe it when I when I heard that stat. That really did come as a surprise. But I've looked at the numbers today, and Cardiff already have only got six points fewer at home this season than they managed in the whole of last season. They managed 25 points at home in 23 home games last year. And they've got 19 after just 10 this year, which tells you everything. So he's certainly improved that area. They've picked up some decent results on the road here and there. Got a point at Leeds, um, drew, uh, won at Sunderland. They, they were narrowly edged out at both Ipswich and Leicester, let's not forget. They lost 2-1 at Leicester and 3-2 at Ipswich. Mm. So, you know, they, they've competed with some of the best teams in the division so far this season. It's fair to say that in their first 20 games... Albeit it is very close to having the point of having played everybody, I must say that they've they've come through it really, really well. And Errol Bullet has done a fantastic well, job because I would have to say that Cardiff probably one of the worst teams I've seen this season play against Blackburn, and that just shows yeah. that within this pack of teams, it people can have up days and bad days, and you'll see teams where you think, "How are they there in the table?" But they're all that's quite exactly inconsistent because ultimately that's why they're so bunched together. That that is exactly it. There is there isn't going to be anybody who is going to be able to string the run of results together within this chasing pack because of the quality of that front three, front four, which we've seen with Ipswich, Leicester, and Leeds, obviously in recent weeks. Southampton as well, to a degree, twelve unbeaten. Now it must be said, you've got you've got to give them credit for that. But Cardiff, realistically, form's been a little bit up and down in the last few weeks. They've only won two of their last six games. But like you said, to be seventh in the league at this stage, just a two two weeks away from Christmas, any Cardiff fan in the world would have taken that at this stage. It's a remarkable effort. So they've got to be really pleased with what they've done so far. They're only two points off fifth at the end of the day. So let, let's see how they get on. Let's see if they can continue. I mean, you'd probably still get good odds on them to finish in the playoff places. I think it's unlikely, but it's the championship. Stranger things have happened. This coming week, Birmingham at home Wednesday night. They've got to be looking at three points from that one with the way Birmingham are going. Then a trip to Hull. We're just stuttering a little bit at the moment. Next weekend, not be an easy game, that one. Big game, both teams looking for a top six berth at the moment. But I think Cardiff, Birmingham and then Hull-Cardiff, those two games, I think if Cardiff could, say, get four points from those two, I think that'd be a good haul to, to, to head into Christmas. Yeah, Certainly I... the, the last game before Christmas, should I say. Yeah, more absolutely. before Christmas after next week. <laughs> Yeah, absolutely. Uh, there was three draws in the Championship this weekend. Watford won, Saints won, probably the headline. Um, really good goal from Shadams. I thought it was a really good finish as well. Not just like the touch to take it away from the defender, but to have the presence of mind that the, the goalkeeper's going to dive to the corner and smash it straight down the middle. Really good finish in a crowded penalty area. That was cancelled out by Reese Healy. Bazunu, I thought, made some really good saves in this game, but ultimately should save the one that creeps in that goes under in from range from Healy. Um, so we'll be disappointed with that. Point apiece at Vicarage Road. Huddersfield won, Bristol City won. Bergzorg making it 1-0 for the Terriers, who were decent in the first half, but Bristol City fought their way back 
equalising just after half time through Tommy Conway. And then Norwich City nil, Preston North End nil was um, a game where both teams had chances to win it at the end. Uh, Liam Gibbs for Norwich flashing a shot wide and, and Jack Watmore with a, in a crowded penalty area could have t- diverted the ball in as well. But that was honours even at Carrow Road. And that marks the end of this week's Championship Chat podcast. Please make sure you are subscribed to this podcast feed wherever you get your pods from and you'll get the latest episode from us every single week. Follow us on Twitter at ChampChatPod24. Over 17,000 of you are going strong there. So if you want the latest Championship news and opinions, make sure you are following us online. And a huge thank you, as always, to our sponsors, Cars Accepted, for their support this season. If you're looking to take car payments with no contract or monthly fees, make sure you go and check them out at carsaccepted.co.uk. Thank you for listening, and we'll catch you next week for another episode of the Championship Chat Podcast. This is the Championship Chat Podcast, your home of news, views, and debate from England's second tier.